Well, morning everyone. Fantastic to be here. Happy Mother's Day, mums. Uh, let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we do thank you so much uh, for today, for Mother's Day, uh, and for the gift of mums and motherhood. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the ways in which they're a picture of you, for their love and their tenderness, their care, their hard work, uh, selflessness, sacrifice, and just faithfulness, Lord. Uh, please, Lord, this morning, uh, speak to us through your word. You promise you will speak to us, Lord. Help us to see you clearly for who you are and for all this means for us. And we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day again, mums. Um, hope you've had a m- wonderful morning so far and uh, a-, a great day today. Uh, we love you. We think you're amazing. Uh, and we want to honour mothering and motherhood. Uh, we do want to acknowledge, for various reasons, uh, today can be very difficult. So um, mothers who um, we've lost, uh, children who we've lost, uh, relationships that are strained, relationships are broken... Uh, But we do also want to honour mothers and uh, mothering and particularly the amazing loving faithfulness of our relationships with so many of our mums. Uh, Mother's Day reminds us that life is about relationships, relationships of love and trust, uh, where real security lies. Uh, We can forget, can't we? We can start to think life is about things and uh, success and popularity and possessions and experiences. But you think about it long enough and you realise, no, it's about relationships. If you have all that other stuff but no faithful, loving relationships, you realise you're very impoverished. But you can have none of those things and yet that faithful, loving relationship and realise, wow, I've got something that's really worthwhile. Life is about relationships of love and trust, but life is about more than relationships of love and trust with each other. Life is about a relationship of love and trust with the God who made us. Life is about a relationship of love and trust with the God who made us. That is what we are most fundamentally created for, a relationship with our creator. Now, you might have never thought about God as a being who you could have a personal relationship with. You could have thought of God as more of an idea, uh, more of a philosophy, more of a force. Or if he is a being, he's a very distant being. But that's not what the Bible pictures. The Bible pictures that God is a God who wants a relationship with you where you can know him and be known by him where you can love him and be loved by him. A relationship in which there is trust and love and faithfulness and so stability and security for this life and for beyond this life. A life in loving, faithful relationship with God. That's what you exist for. That's what I exist for. And the fundamental thing that God invites us, requires of us to enter into this relationship with him is trust him. Trust him. Entrust yourself to him because that's how you begin a relationship with God. Start to trust him and that's how you continue a relationship with God all the days of your life. Learn to trust him more, more, more. See, Christianity is huge. It's not just come to church a day a week, get it over and done with and go and live your normal life. It's not just a social club of friends who likes to gather together to add a bit more to the balance of a a nice life. No, it's not about get a little bit of religion into your life, get a little bit of morality into your life. No, no, no. It is about enter into a relationship with the God of the universe. The God of the universe who wants to enter into a loving, faithful relationship with you. Christianity is put your trust in God to rule you, to lead you, to save you, to love you. Enter into that sort of relationship. And you enter into that sort of relationship by trusting him. So surely the big question is, can I trust him? Can I trust God? Well, how do you know whether you can trust anyone? 
Think about your mums for a moment. When I think about my mum, a whole bunch of things come to mind. One of the first ones is a story that she loves to tell about how much she loves me. Uh, The story is about, uh, I was walking under some big trees and a huge spider, the way she tells it, the spider was as big as a plate. A huge spider falls out of the tree, lands on the top of my head, and she is terrified of spiders. I hate spiders too, particularly huntsmen's. They just, just, move so quickly and drops on my head... She reaches out, terrified, grabs it off my head, throws it away, and she finishes the story by saying, that's how much I love you. (laughs) Now, it was a moment of love, but I think of the years of her faithfully loving me. When I was a kid, in kindy, I used to go to the canteen, and I'd buy a one-cent lolly every day. Now, it shows you how old I am. I'd buy my one-cent lolly each day, and I'd get my lolly, and as I came away from the canteen, this kid would meet me every day, and he said, what do you got in your hand? And I'd show him, and he'd go, boop, the lolly would land on the ground, he'd grab it and run away and eat it. Next day, what do you got in your hand? Boop, lolly. Next day, I was a smart kid. (laughs) Now, my mum and my sister, older sister, found out And what they did was they bought one of these lollies, they took a skewer and they made a hole into it, they stuffed it full of the hottest chilli they could find, sealed it back up. The next day, coming back from the canteen, what do you got in your hand? Boop, he ran away and he never came back. (laughs) Don't mess with our mums, they protect us. But as I think of my mum, my dad, I think of the years of faithful, dependable, loving care. They weren't perfect, but... Night after night, being woken by my crying as a child, getting up to feed me. Countless gross nappies, millions of meals cooked uh, to feed, to nourish me. Day after day of hard, grinding work to look after me and my sisters. Driving me here, there, to school, to sport, to sport, to sport. The constant thing about what's best for me. The worry expended on me, the work that she and my dad did for me, the tenderness they gave to me, the experiences. When I broke my leg when I was seven, every morning, and I was in hospital for two months, broken femur, don't do that. Two months, every morning, every night, my mum, my dad, they came, they visited me. I think of a childhood of faithfulness, loving faithfulness, of keeping their promises, of being there when they said they would, And I'm sure many of you can reflect on your mothers and fathers in these sort of ways. Now again, for others this is painful. You think, oh, I wish my mum was more like that. I wish my dad was more like that. But no matter how good they are, (laughs) they're all flawed, aren't they? When I think about myself as a dad, man, I am not the dad that I wish I was. My parents were far far from perfect, but I knew I could trust them because they were trustworthy. When it comes to trusting people, it's a bit like a bank. Each time someone is trustworthy, you learn, I can trust them. It's like a trust deposit to their account in your bank. They keep their promise to you, deposit. They do what they said they'd do, deposit. They don't lie in the moment when it would be easier for them to lie, more beneficial for them to lie, they don't lie, deposit. They're true to their character, deposit. They turn up when you need them, deposit. And the bigger the acts of faithfulness, the bigger the deposits that are made. And so over time, with the trustworthy person, there are many deposits being made over a long period of time, some small, some big. And so in the trust account they hold with you, they are very wealthy. You trust them heaps because they've shown themselves to be trustworthy. Now sometimes they fail. All humans fail. 
But small, infrequent withdrawals from the trust account don't make much of an impact on the balance because they've been depositing so much over so long a period of time. You know it, don't you? If the regular pattern of a relationship with someone is trustworthiness, faithfulness, keeping their promises, and then after a while, one off, they fail to keep their promise, you cut them slack because you know people fail sometimes because generally this person is a trustworthy person. It's foolish to trust someone who is untrustworthy, causes hurt and damage, but to trust someone who is trustworthy is a wonderful thing. And so the big question about God is whether God is trustworthy. Is he faithful? Does he keep his promises in all circumstances? And the answer to that question is the foundational underpinning of the passage in the Bible that was just read for us, 2 Corinthians. And please open to 2 Corinthians if you don't have it open. And if you don't have a Bible with you, um, that's okay, listen on or maybe look on with someone um, who's nearby you. The words we have written in front of us are written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Corinth in 55-56 AD. They're the Apostle Paul writing into a very tricky situation, a situation which the church in Corinth is questioning whether the Apostle Paul is trustworthy. See, it's a passage about trust. So we'll look together at the situation Paul finds himself in and the two big things that he wants to say to the church in order to show them he is trustworthy. And these things, particularly one of them, is the foundational piece that answers the question, can I trust God? So the situation... Step with me into it. The situation the Apostle Paul finds himself in with the Church of Corinth is this. He's like a spiritual dad to the Church of Corinth. He started it. He went there to Corinth, shared the message with them for about 18 months. Many people believed in Jesus and became Christians. Their spiritual lives with God began and a church was formed. And so like a spiritual father, a spiritual parent... Paul had given them spiritual life by sharing the message of Jesus with them. And then, like a spiritual parent, he taught them, cared for them, suffered for them, disciplined them for their good. He'd loved them, he'd loved them faithfully. But then over time, tension had grown. Tension in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church for a number of reasons. One of them was that Paul had been absent And so there's just a distance in the relationship with infrequent visits and letters. Another was that Paul had to discipline them for some terribly bad things that they had been doing in their church and that had caused a strain in their relationship. Another, and you can see it, it seems in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11, is that there'd been particularly one man who had opposed Paul and uh, they hadn't shut this man down the way that they should have. And Paul had had to change his travel plans in coming to visit them and they didn't like that. But the big thing that happened in their relationship was that a new group of Christian teachers, leaders, had turned up in the church of Corinth. A group of leaders who said they followed Jesus but the Jesus they were talking about was nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus they talked about was a Jesus who was powerful, impressive, uh, important, prestigious and they talked about themselves as leaders who are similarly powerful prestigious impressive successful not ordinary leaders like the apostle Paul super leaders not ordinary apostles like Paul but super apostles not weak and unimpressive like Paul who suffers so much for the Corinthian church to help them honor God 
but powerful, impressive leaders who want the Corinthian church to honour them. Now, this is a perversion of the Christian message. This power, prestige, impressive, important, cool Christianity. It's terrible. Now, unfortunately, you look around the world and you see it everywhere today. (laughs) Similar versions of it. But some in the church of Corinth looked at these super apostles and thought, these are the cool kids on the block. These are the ones we can trust. And they looked at Paul and thought, he's uncool. He's not where it's at these days. And the super apostles are trying to drive a wedge between Paul and the Corinthians and saying things like, you can't trust Paul. You can trust us. We're with you. He's weak. He's unimpressive. He's not even here. And when he tells you he's going to do something, he flip-flops on his decisions. He's two-faced. You can't trust him. And so given all these factors, a portion of the church of Corinth starts to think badly of Paul. Super apostles, impressive. Paul, unimpressive. Super apostles, trustworthy. Paul, not trustworthy. And so when Paul writes letters to them now, they start to be sus about what he writes. And a chunk of the Corinthian church are treating him like, maybe you don't really love us. Maybe you don't really have our best interests at heart. Maybe we can't really trust what you say. Now you can see that's the case from verse 12. See it there? Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relationship with you with integrity and godly sincerity. See how he says to them, everything we've done is with integrity and godly sincerity. That's because... And the influence of the super apostles, they're questioning whether Paul actually has been a man of integrity. Whether he actually has been sincerely seeking to do what God wanted him to do. They're questioning, can we trust Paul? Is he faithful? And particularly because Paul had had a travel plan that involved them, had shared the travel plan with them, but then had changed his plan. See verse 16? I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia... And then I come back to you from Macedonia, and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So that's his plan. On his way to Macedonia, northern Greece, he wanted to visit them in Corinth. And then coming back from Macedonia to come through Corinth again, southern Greece, so that they could send him on to Jerusalem across the Mediterranean. Visit Corinth twice on his way to and from Macedonia. Double visit, double benefit. That's Paul's original plan. But then he changed his plan. He'll tell us why in a bit. But he changed his plan. How does a portion of the Corinthian church respond under the influence of the super apostles? Verse 17. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? See, the fact that the apostle Paul has to say, was I fickle when I made this original plan shows that the church was saying, you're fickle. You're two-faced. You're double-minded, you flip-flop in the same breath, yes, yes, and no, no. They're thinking about Paul, their spiritual father, the ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, as unfaithful. Now, we can feel something of what the Apostle Paul would feel like in this sort of situation. Imagine this with me, and I'm sorry if this is close to the bone for some of you. Imagine this with me. You have a teenage child. You birth them. You loved them. You cared for them. You poured your life into them. You disciplined them for their good. You suffered for them year after year. You gave yourself for them. They hit mid-teenage years and they start thinking, they know what's best, better than you. 
maybe even start thinking, maybe you don't have my best interests at heart. And then they start hanging around with the wrong crowd, a group of older teenage friends. And the new friends start saying to them things like, you can't trust your mum, you can't trust your dad. They're old, they're boring, they're out of touch with how things really are. We're your mates, we're with you all the time, trust us, not them. And your teenagers start to buy it. The blood, the sweat, the tears you've faithfully poured into them over the last 15 years. And instead, they're drawn away to this new crowd, thinking you're uncool, they're cool. You're unimpressive, they're impressive. And even start thinking you're untrustworthy, they're trustworthy. And so now when you say things to them for their good out of love, they're sus. They treat you like, maybe you don't have my best interests at heart. Maybe you're unfaithful. Can you imagine the pain of the Apostle Paul in this situation? Spiritual father who loved and has suffered for his children and now they're questioning, is he faithful? What do you do? What do you do if you're him? But can I add something to this? And this is big. Paul is not just concerned to sort out his relationship, sort this situation out with the Corinthian church because he wants his relationship with them restored. He definitely wants this. He loves them. But there's a bigger thing going on. Paul is not just any Christian leader. Paul is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ambassador of God. What Paul says is the message of Jesus. What he speaks is as the representative of Jesus, is what Jesus says. And so if you reject Paul, you're not just rejecting Paul, you're rejecting Jesus. And so Paul is desperate for their good that they not reject him. Because if they turn away from Jesus' chosen messenger, they turn away from Jesus' message, which means they turn away from Jesus himself and lose God. In 168 BC, the Syrian king Antiochus IV marched on Egypt and began taking territories. Egypt, weak, under attack, cries out to Rome. Rome is the superpower of the day. You don't mess with Rome and its mighty armies. Rome agrees to help Egypt, but instead of sending an army, they send an ambassador, a guy by the name of Gaius Papilius Laenus, to talk to the Syrian king. This ambassador is an old man. He turns up not with an army, but with 12 other men, not armed men, men wearing togas, and they carried sticks, fasces on their backs, a symbol that these guys were, uh, this guy was the ambassador. And so the ambassador meets the king of Syria, and the ambassador of Rome says to him, you're offending the senate and the people of Rome, I've been ordered to make you go home to Syria. Now the king laughs and laughs and laughs and says, how are you going to make me go home? Where is your army? The ambassador responds, I don't need an army. Everything Rome is, has been and will be is standing here before you now. I am Rome. And in the name of Rome, I say to you, go home. No, said the king. So the ambassador of Rome stepped out and took his staff and drew a circle around the king of Syria in the dust And the ambassador said, before you step out of that circle, I advise you to think again. And when you step out of it, be facing east and go home. When the king stepped out of the circle, he went home to Syria. See, this man, the ambassador of Rome, was Rome to the king. 
He spoke Rome's message with Rome's authority. He represented Rome. And how the Syrian king responded to the words of this man was how he responded to the empire of Rome itself. The Apostle Paul is the ambassador of Jesus. Paul spoke God's message with God's authority. Paul represented Jesus. And how people, including the Corinthian church, responded to the words of this man was how they responded to God. And how we respond to the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, how we respond to God. Do you see why Paul is so concerned that they see him as faithful? Because if they turn away from him, they turn away from the very message of God itself and so God himself. Now, how would you try to deal with this situation if you, if you were Paul? Your spiritual children are questioning whether you are trustworthy. Are, are you faithful? Whether you keep your promise? What do you say to them? Well, what we see here before us in this letter, these verses, is what he wants to say to them. And he wants to say to them two big things. Two big things. And I'm going to do it in reverse order. The second big thing that he wants them to know is this. He changed his plans out of love for them. He changed his plans out of love for them. He actually had good reason for changing his plans, for their good. Not out of selfishness or unfaithfulness or on a whim or because he's too... He loves them. Remember the original plan? I think we've got a map. It's just got the places on it. But I'm going to visit you on my way to Macedonia heading north and then I'm going to visit you again as I come back heading south from Macedonia and then you're going to send me on my way to Jerusalem. Instead, Paul went straight to Macedonia rather than going to Corinth. And instead of visiting them, he sent them a letter. Now, just as an aside, what we're dealing with here in the Bible is real people, real places, real history. You can go to Corinth, you can go to Macedonia, you can go to Jerusalem today. Real letters, real situations. We're dealing with history here, not myth, make-believe, fairy tale, a bunch of pithy sayings, real things that took place but deeply spiritual things as well. Now, why does Paul uh, say he chose not to return to them when he, when, he, um, when he said that he would? Because there'd been history between Paul and the Corinthian church, which meant Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was strained. And so he decides, I can't go back now to visit the Corinthians because if I go back now, it's going to pour fuel on the fire. It's going to blow things up. My relationship with the Corinthian church won't survive <coughs> if I visit this time. And so he changed his plan. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 23. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And then jump down to verse 1, chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came to you, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. See, there's been a major issue in the church of Corinth. Something seriously wrong has gone on. And so in the past, the Apostle Paul has had to deal with it. Say, stop, it's wrong before God. It's been a painful time with them, a painful visit and a very difficult time in their relationship. And so now having left but planning to come back quickly, Paul in his wisdom thinks, oh, if I come back to Corinth now, it won't go well. It could possibly mean things blow up and this is the end of my relationship with the Corinthian church. There's just so much pain. And so instead of visiting them, he writes them a letter, what he calls a severe letter. 
a letter that backs up the painful visit, that calls them to turn from the wrong that they've been doing and to again to convey his love for them. That's what Paul wants for the Corinthians, to recognise the wrong, for them to turn away from it, to think warmly again of Paul and for their relationship to be warm again. And when that happens, Paul will be able to go, now's the time, now's the time to come and visit. And wonderfully, that's actually what eventuates. But do you see what Paul is saying? I changed my plans out of what is best for you. I changed my plans out of love for you. The visit I had planned would have blown things up, but instead I wrote. Paul is not being unfaithful. What he is being is loving, which reminds us of our God. Our God is a God of love, and his leaders are to be leaders of love who give of themselves for others. They're the leaders you want to follow. And his people are to be people of love who pour themselves out for the good of others. That's the second big thing Paul wants them to know about why he changed his plan. He changed his plan out of love for them. But the first big thing that Paul wants them to know about why he changed his plan is this. He changed his plan because he is faithful just as his God is faithful. Paul says, I'm trustworthy. I keep my word. You can rely on me. Remember the Corinthians were saying, you're you're fickle, you're vacillating, you can't be... Paul responds, no, I'm faithful just like my God is faithful. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, They are yes in Christ. Paul says to them, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you, our words to you, is not yes and no, it's only yes. Our word to you when we spoke God's message to you. In fact, all our words to you are faithful, trustworthy words because God is the faithful God and we are faithful representatives of the faithful God. God always keeps his promises and Paul says he and his companions are faithful just like their God in bringing God's faithful message faithfully to the Corinthians and others. Paul reminds them every promise God has made, he's kept. Verse 20, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The message Paul has brought to them is a message about the faithfulness of God, the promise-keeping God. And the messenger, Paul, has faithfully brought that faithful message and conducted all his ministry in faithfulness, just like his God. He embodies in his leadership the faithfulness of his God and the faithfulness of his God's message. That's what Christian leaders are to be like. People of integrity like their God, trustworthy. That's what Christians are to be like, because that's who our God is. It's critically important to the Apostle Paul that the Corinthians recognise he is faithful. Yes, because again, what it will mean for their relationship with him, but even more for what it means for their relationship with God. Because if they question Paul's faithfulness, the faithfulness of the ambassador of God, then they are questioning the faithfulness of God's message and so the faithfulness of God himself. This is a huge concern for Paul that they might actually turn away from God if they think that Paul is unfaithful. So do you you see what Paul does? How he responds in this situation where they're criticising him for being untrustworthy because he changed his travel plans. Two things he says. One is, I changed my plans because I love you. 
And, and firstly, he says, when I changed my plan, I wasn't being unfaithful. No, no, my words to you have always been faithful, just as God is faithful. But he does it all in a way that points the Corinthians beyond himself to look at God and us. Because there's a, there's a deeper foundation, and that deeper foundation is that the God is the utterly faithful one. See, can I trust God? Yes, because he is utterly trustworthy. It's verse 18. As surely as God is faithful. He doesn't need to demonstrate it. The whole Bible demonstrates it. Rather, he establishes his faithfulness by laying it on the foundation of God's faithfulness. Verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is, every promise God has made, he has kept. Every promise. He is a rock you can build your life on. A place of stability and safety and security. Because it's a solid relationship of trust and love that never crumbles or fails or falters. God is the only perfect being in existence who does not lie. Who does not change his mind. Who never breaks a promise whose every promise is kept in every circumstance. And his promises to us are promises of love and goodness and hope. When it comes to the bank of trust that we were talking about, trust deposits, trust withdrawals, God only ever deposits. Only ever deposits. The God who calls us to trust him is perfectly trustworthy. Now it's possible to think that God has been unfaithful to you. But can I encourage you to keep looking into the promises of God because you might think he's broken a promise that he never made. Because I guarantee, God guarantees that he has kept every promise that he's ever made. And every promise he has made in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, verse 20. Every promise he has made in history, he has kept in history. For instance, right at the very beginning of the Bible, when God promises that he will destroy all evil, but in the destruction of all evil through a human, that human will be wounded himself. When is that fulfilled? When Jesus is born, he is God the Son come amongst us, come to destroy all evil, but he destroys it by dying himself, mortally wounded to destroy. 2 Samuel 7, when God promises that a king will come from David's line who will rule forever. How is there a king that can rule forever? Every king dies. But the Lord Jesus, when he comes, though he dies, he is resurrected from the dead to live forever and rule the universe forever as the good king. Yes. Well, the promise in Isaiah 53 of a servant who will come and suffer on behalf of God's people, who will die not for things he has done wrong, but for the things we have done wrong, who will suffer and be rejected not for his sin, but for our sin, for our wrongdoing, for our failure to do what is right. He, the sinless one, will die for the sinful. Who is this servant? Jesus, God the Son, the sinless Saviour, come to die for sinful humans. Well, the promise in Isaiah 65 are a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new perfected universe where there will be no more death or war or disease or pain, but peace and life with God forever. When is this promise fulfilled? Ultimately when Jesus returns, but it's fulfilled when Jesus dies on the cross and is risen from the dead because he is the beginning of the new creation. Every promise God has made, he is fulfilled. He is fulfilled. And there are hundreds of them through the Old Testament. And they are promises to you for your good of a God who has come near to save you and draw you close to himself and bring you into a whole new creation. There are no bigger promises than these and God has been faithful and kept every single one of them. And we can trust God because he is not only faithful to his promises, he is also faithful to his people. 
God guarantees for us an eternally long relationship if we will trust him. Have a look with me at verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul reminds the Corinthians again of God's faithfulness to them from this day until eternity. He guarantees he will keep them in an eternal relationship with him. See, when someone becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within them. They are anointed by the Spirit. The things we're talking about are rational things, historical things, evidence-based things, but profoundly spiritual things as well. Deep, profound spiritual change in individuals. Before the 16th of September 1990, I did not have the Spirit of God living in me. And then, on a night, I heard the message of Jesus and I understood it and I trusted myself to God and I was connected to God in such a way that I received His Spirit. And every day since that day, I've lived my life connected to God as my Father and Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. See, there's a promise that when you trust God, he, he gives you his spirit. And for those who have the spirit, God will keep them standing with him for all eternity because God is faithful. See verse 22? Those who God has anointed with his spirit, he has set his seal of ownership on. In many areas in history, uh, when you wanted to um, show something with yours, mark it as authentic, you would drop a wax on a piece of paper and then stamp it with a seal. And the seal said, mine, mine. When you come to God and trust in Jesus, he stamps you with his seal of ownership and says, you are mine forevermore. I'll hang on to you. I'll never let you go. You are secure. Verse 22, the spirit is also a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. When you buy a house, super costly thing to do these days. When you buy a house, you put down a deposit, a big deposit. A deposit, a portion of the cost that guarantees you are going to pay the full cost eventually. And a big deposit guarantees you will pay the full cost in the future. When we come to trust in his son, God puts his spirit in our hearts, his spirit that can never be taken from us, his spirit that is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal life with God to come in a whole new creation. We can be certain God is going to give us heaven eternity because he's paid the deposit and it's a huge deposit god the spirit come to live within us because god is faithful and he will never let his people go so i urge you this morning if you've never put your trust in god to trust him today to trust the only trustworthy one because he's the only one who'll never let you down he always keeps his promises faithful to his promises and faithful to his people uh, a number of years ago now my um my son, who was 18 months old at the time, had to go for an operation. He actually had to go for open heart surgery. He'd had a hole in his heart um, since birth. Not, not a huge one, not super serious, but over time it was clear. It wasn't closing and it was, um, it, it was threatening his, his growth and health and, uh, and so he needed an operation. The operation was open heart surgery, you know, full, cracked open, bypass machine, blood transfusions, all that sort of stuff. So from the parent's perspective, frightening, a frightening thing. Um, but... From the doctor's perspective, they do thousands of them, thousands and thousands, and the, and the percentage risk is very, very, very low. 
But I remember the day when we went into the, um, into the hospital and it was the day of the operation. We sat in the, in the waiting room waiting for the, the turn to, to hand my son over, to entrust my son into the hands of the surgeons for this surgery. And I, and I went in with him. Uh, Megan couldn't bear to go. I, I went in with him and um, held him as they put the little mask on him and he breathed the air and he went to sleep. And then I entrusted him to them. I had good reason to. They'd shown themselves to be trustworthy in so many operations over such a period of time. I had good reason to. Boy, it was a big thing to trust something so precious into the hands of someone else. What God asks of us is to entrust our very lives into his hands. To say, I'm yours, God. I give myself to you. Do with me what you want. I'll, I'll follow you. I entrust myself to you as my God. Now, there's good reason. He's the faithful God who will never let you down. Entrust yourself to him. That's how you start a relationship with God. Entrust yourself. And it may be that you need more. Keep going back week by week, hearing the promises of God in the word. Come to explaining Christianity. Hear the promises of God. See if you can trust this God. That's how you start a relationship with God. Start to trust him. And I imagine this morning, for a number of us, it will mean restarting our relationship with God. Retrusting God in a way that we have not done for a while. And for many of us, the challenge will just be trusting God each day. Entrusting myself to God into the difficult circumstance of life when I'm anxious, when I'm afraid, when I'm despairing. To work in that moment to remind myself God is faithful. He loves me. And I can trust his promises. Promises like, if I trust his son, he is my father. He promises his love is towards me every day and cannot be taken away. He promises he is with me right now in this moment. In fact, in this moment, he is doing all these things for my eternal good, every single thing that happens for me, and he is holding me safe for eternity. I can trust him. And so the challenge for each of us each day is to, in real life, in real time, be entrusting myself to God and the promises that he has made to, be, to, to me. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we thank you that you are the faithful one that you have made such wonderful promises for our good and that every promise you have ever made you have kept in your son. You're faithful to your promises. You're faithful to your people. And please, Lord, enable us to trust you because you are trustworthy. Father, we pray that you would enable some to begin trusting you today for the very first time or re-entrusting themselves to you. For all of us, Lord, please help us to grow to trust you day by day, to entrust ourselves to you in all the circumstances of life. And please, particularly, to trust in your promises in the difficult and dark seasons. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.